This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Human beings have always chased after what we might call transcendence. We're searching for some higher meaning, a way to connect with something beyond ourselves. Things like truth and beauty, and yes, even the divine. For much of our history, religion, for better or worse, has been the locus of so much of this seeking. But the world, certainly the Western world, is becoming less religious. For a lot of humanist types, this has been something like a tragedy. The decline of religion meant that the language of spirituality also faded away because these things were bound up with each other. And a consequence of this has been a loss of the sense of the sacred in human life. But does it have to be that way? Can we still speak of the sacred in our modern, secular world? And if we can, what does that look like? I'm Sean Illing, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Jennifer Michael Hecht. She's a poet and historian, which are two titles you don't often see next to each other. But as we'll talk about, she sees a lot of overlap between these disciplines. She's written original poetry and has chronicled the histories of weighty ideas like doubt, the soul, and suicide. Her new book is called The Wonder Paradox, embracing the weirdness of existence and the poetry of our lives. In it, She tries to give new life to many things associated with religion, like prayer and ritual and sanctity. But instead, she grounds them in the non-religious world, the secular world. Jennifer's readers have pegged her as an atheist, and they're not exactly wrong. But as she explained to me, it's a bit more complicated. to this book already a sort of minor famous atheist. I had written a book 
called Doubt a History, a history of religious doubt and atheism all over the world throughout time, which came out in 2003. And I started to be invited all over the place to groups I didn't know existed to talk about atheism. What was so fascinating about writing a history of atheism was that the people who were atheists didn't just say, I'm an atheist. They came up with other ways of living, other ways of understanding what life is for and what meaning is. So I was already sort of on that track that I was talking about philosophical and historical things, but with an emotional component. Mm -hmm. And my audiences really gave rise to this new book by being sort of fascinated by the fact that there could be an atheist who was not rejecting ritual Mm. and who was not rejecting what I've come to call the poetry of life. But yeah, with this book, I'm really mostly saying to people, go ahead and do the rituals you're already doing. We can be the interfaithless, which I made up sort of as a joke, but I couldn't throw out because we believe in the inter. We believe in the connection between us, and we can all do some of the rituals that we feel like because we grew up with them. But I would say to add a poem because you need that moment of sort of graceful introspection, a moment to just be quiet, if nothing else, to just give them the tiniest bit more meaning by thinking about it that way. I definitely want to get into all that, but can I ask a little bit more about you? Yeah, sure. I'm very fascinated by your background. You're both a historian, as you were just describing, and you're also a poet. How does that happen? Yeah, I don't often see historian and poet in the same bio. I suppose there's a bunch of ways to tell the story, but the main thing is that my father, as a first-generation college-goer, somewhat bumbled into a PhD in physics and really just suggesting that his three children also become professors. So I went to Columbia. They kept saying they were going to hire a cultural historian. I was going to study sort of the history of poetry. I didn't know anything. I was a child, and it just seemed like a more rigorous or engaged or sort of total way of studying literature by studying the history that it hangs on. And I fell in with the historians of science when I went to Columbia. So yeah, I became a cultural historian with a specialty in the history of science and then migrated over more to the history of science, which is a kind of poetry of itself. Rather than a body of knowledge, the history of science is somewhat about searching for metaphors that can help you to understand why science is so different in different periods of time. And to kind of, when you can begin to get a gut sense of that, you can start to dismantle some of the nonsense from the truth, because some of it's just cultural and it's going to fall away. You know, we are in a very strange situation just as being conscious meat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just that's weird. Now, throw in, throw in mortality and ambition. Oh, great. I've got both ambition and mortality. So I want to do great things, and I'm going to die, and I don't know when. The whole thing is a mess of paradoxes. Mm. I mean, there's so many paradoxes that have grown up evolutionarily between the human experience and the environment and situation that we're in, and that's what poetry is. So your dad is an atheist physicist. Your mom was pretty religious. Correct. Was that a source of tension in your house? Yeah, it was a source of tension in the house, but I would say there was enough of all sorts of things going on. I'm not sure it was primary because my dad did sort of let my mom run the kids thing. (laughs) 
But I believed until I, I had a moment when I was 12 years old and had one of those moments that I, I talk to people and read memoirs. Lots of people have a moment in adolescence where because of a certain slant of light, a certain shimmering moment, a certain fall of crystal along your eyesight, and you suddenly notice that, you, that you've taken an awful lot for granted, that you could be a being anywhere, any place, with all sorts of different concerns. And the fact that you were born into this family, this house, this country, is all so arbitrary. And I suppose because my father was already an atheist, it was a little bit easier, perhaps, for a 12-year-old to get all the way to I don't believe any of this. And it was painful. And I tell the story in the introduction of the book. I was in a junior high school library standing in front of a poetry shelf expecting no help whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But at least, you know, I look back and say, well, I knew where to go, right? And I opened up this book that was explicitly poetry for depressed teenagers. And I was not moved by anything and out wafted this little piece of paper, a little glossy piece of paper excised from some magazine or something with vigorous use of a blue ballpoint pen. And it was this paragraph by Raina Maria Rilke mm-hmm. that says to live the questions. Live the questions now as if they are books written in some foreign tongue that you do not now understand. You could not now be given the answers to the questions. You have to live them to understand. And then if you just live the questions and forget about the answers, you may some distant day live your way into the answers. And this this cured me so profoundly because it was the company, the friendship of being reached across time, but also just the idea, oh, you can live the questions. And love them, right? Learn to love them. Love the questions and let them be who you are, not the emptiness of the non-answer. And then you find yourself. Sometimes perspective can change and your brain can explode. I fell in love with that. I wanted that. And poetry is where I go for that. This new book of yours is so damn interesting. How would you describe this book and what you're trying to do with it? The Wonder Paradox, it's all about if you don't have God, what else do you lose when you lose religion? Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is we come in the United States from such a Protestant Christian perspective, even an American Protestant Christian perspective. So that when I say, what do we lose? The first thing we might think is the afterlife or someone to ask for favors when we're in real trouble or someone to believe has a morality explanation for all this suffering, right? Those are some big things. Well, Not all religions have those things. Most religions do not have an afterlife. And, you know, Jews don't make a very big deal of heaven, and that was my background. But the idea that we would live on in some kind of positive way was definitely part of what I believed. So the book is really about each of these losses, but I don't only go to Christianity to say, well, what did we used to get? I really wanted to present people with a reminder of the different ways that human beings have figured out to make ourselves feel better, so many of them have ended up in the bowl we call religion, and I'm saying we can't lose all this stuff. Yeah. I I grew up in the, the Deep South, mm. very Christian culture. My family was 
Catholic, but not in any serious way. The Catholicism never stuck for me. I, I immediately found it suspect and drifted into atheism quite naturally. Oh, fascinating. But as I've gotten older, I have come to think of religion differently, certainly God differently. Mm. I guess I'm an agnostic at the moment. I, I'm still not a fan of organized religion, and I still think the church is an all-too-human institution. But like you, I see so much more in religion than dogmas and the holy books, and I appreciate how seriously you take it, because I think it deserves to be taken seriously. Sure. I mean, we organize our emotional lives, which are very complicated, and we don't know. I mean, we know the smallest portion of what's going on in terms of our social interactions and how, as a group, we're held together. I always use the metaphor in my mind of meerkats and how if you just took one into a lab and started doing experiments on it, you would not know much about what you would know if you put a camera on the whole colony. Mm. And I think we think of ourselves as individuals in a way that is, I don't think we have a clue how much we're holding each other together. Yeah. I think it's much more like meerkats, you know, and we also have the benefit of a tremendous amount of language, and it's still hard to reach each other. But most of this stuff, especially, I suppose, in the capitalist country, has to get shunted off into a special place, and that special place has been called religion. And I guess I'm asking people, what happens if we call our special place in that sense, poetry, joining it with real poetry, uh, poems, short-lined things, but also just thinking poetically about love and art and meaning. Because I don't see how, look, if you believe in a God and you place meaning in this God and then don't ask many more questions, yes, if you then lose God, you lose meaning and you're in trouble. But it's not at all what most religions do. Most religions don't have a fella upstairs who holds all meaning. You know, justice we have a problem with, but meaning really, we have more than enough. The feeling of meaning is sufficient to the definition of meaning. It is. Yeah. Well, this, this new book is very much about how religion has traditionally carved out these spaces in our lives for reflection and transcendence and connection. And religion just doesn't have the kind of purchase on our lives that it once did. And that means we have to think harder and more about creating these spaces in a secular world. Yeah. But I do want to ask if you think we have really lost something when we moved into, I don't want to say a post-religious world because we'll never live in a post-religious world, but a world in which religion has receded as a dominant guiding force in our lives. And you're asking if we've lost something? Yeah, if you think we really have lost something that is not retrievable. No. I think that we have everything we started with. We just don't notice. I really do. I can't imagine what God could have taken with him since he wasn't here. We always found what life is and what makes it worth living by getting together, by community, ritual, meditation, by times alone, thinking deeply. And again, I'll say that in a sort of capitalist country, we define anything that's doing that stuff as religion, especially when we don't know the language of the people we are talking about. We just define it as religion. And as a historian, I see these reverberating all over society through history. 
say, the idea of liturgy. That word doesn't start in Christianity. The word starts in ancient Greece, and it was about the social celebrations that large landowners were responsible for putting on on a yearly basis. So liturgy starts outside the church, then comes to the church, and it can come out again. And to some degree, it's a matter of almost self-respect. The great power of religion has always been more social than personal, in my opinion. Hmm. I don't think we need religion to know how to be good. That has always been the stupidest, the absolute stupidest critique of atheism. I'm with you on that. But the power of religion to not just provide a shared moral order, but also the physical spaces to come together and affirm those beliefs, like a secular, liberal world in which the individual is sovereign, where the individual is left to her own lights. Yes. I will agree with you right away that as long as there's some kind of continuum between community and individualism, if I'm going to choose individualism, which I am, so the question is then, do I lose some of that good feeling of community? Yes. But what I'm suggesting is that without much change in behavior, we can notice that those of us who don't believe in God or don't believe in a certain kind of God, we do all sorts of different things for our well, what the religious would call soul, but what I would call an emotional and intellectually fulfilling life. We go to museums. Those museums are temples of reflection. We send our kids to school, and in many cases, they put their hands on their hearts, and they say a chant about how we're all together, and then a song plays, and they sing along to some degree. We have many places in society where we have figured out that people feel good when they say something together, especially when they say something positive together and they try together. And when something terrible happens, we know to come together to grieve. You know, I live in New York City. You can sort of always figure out where people might be mourning. If something really sad is happening, someone has died, you can go to certain landmarks and expect there'll be other people grieving there. You know, when Lou Reed died, there was a grand piano in Washington Square Park and someone was playing Perfect Day. I didn't know that was going to happen. I just walked there. And what I'm saying is that in the cities, it's a very human-based art-based kind of way that we make our lives sacred, communally sacred and privately sacred. When you live more in the country, you have access to a whole different kind of temple, right? Which in many ways works better. I mean, the shock of sickness and death that happens in the city because you just think everything's supposed to work. But in this country, you see death is work. Death is how this thing works. This thing is just a life-death machine, and you don't get as shocked and as appalled. What do religions that don't have an afterlife do about death? They look in another direction. They concentrate their attention in another direction. I know I have an awful lot to say, but I really felt that I was reading what people were already doing and seeing it as more profound than they seemed to see it was. And I wanted to show, no, this is amazing. Take the assist. Let that into your heart. And if other people are passing around a poem, that doesn't mean, oh, that's a cliche, that's cheap. No, that means that's cultural liturgy. Grab on and hold on, and this can give you some peace.
So what's the power of religious rituals? Is it the tradition? Is it the symbolism? Or is it really the belief in God? I'll ask Jennifer after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Again, I grew up in the South and I moved back here a few years ago. And I know people who don't read the Bible, who don't take any of it seriously, who don't even go to church, but they still feel compelled to participate in these symbolic rituals like communion or, or getting your child baptized or whatever. Sure. And I guess I have mixed feelings about it, but I also get it. And it sounds like a lot of other people, you included, also get it. And that's the part of religion we have to take seriously if we're going to think about what secular equivalents might look like. Right. I think my own practice is relatively minimal. I like to check in with the holidays. My husband was raised Catholic, and we sort of decided in the beginning we were raising the children Jewish. Really, we we just sort of do the holidays. And for me, it's very light, okay? I'm not saying, oh, because I believe in ritual, I'm going to go sit in a pew for hours. I don't. I don't want to. But many people do. And maybe at some point in my life, I, I will want to. My point is really that when you start to be able to take a little of the political heat out of this question, mm. you realize that there are things that one rejects in a kind of state of fear, right? I don't want to give a credit to the religious. I don't want them to have a point because I said that this aspect of religion might be okay. Well, what if we can move away from that a little? I mean, I, I'm glad there are hardline, nail-spitting atheists out there. I don't want them all to be me, but there could be one me. The story I tell in the 
introduction of the book, which was really what set me out on this. My very first doubt talk, Mm -hmm. a very pregnant couple came up to me at the signing, and I was expecting a question on history or philosophy, which was mostly what I talked about. But I also made it clear what I think. And so they came up and they wanted to have a bris. They knew the baby was going to be a boy. Since then, I've had many people ask me the baptism question, too. And what they're asking is, may I? You know, they asked me, can we do this? Would it be a betrayal of our parents' faith to do this? Would it be a hypocritical act? And also, would it be a breaking of faith with our true beliefs, which are atheism? But I could tell they wanted to have the party. So I said, Mazel Tov, have the party. Have the damn party. But then as they were walking away, they were almost at the door, and I shout out, but add some Whitman. You know, (laughs) and they turn around and look at me, and so I tell them this Whitman line. There's a part in Leaves of Grass where he actually writes the word question. Oh, me, so much, myself despising so much, you know, and talking about how life is so hard and we're all toiling and working and the pain and the hypocrisy and the lying. What is it all? Is there any point in it? And then he writes the word answer. And the answer is that you exist, that we exist, and identity. I love that, and identity. It's not just that we exist, but identity? What an extraordinary thing to be part of, to be accidentally part of. And then he says that the powerful play may go on, and you may contribute a verse. It's two lines. I had to give it a little context, right? But I'm shouting it across the room. Other people are waiting in line. And they turn around in the whole room, and I feel that room. That room needed those words. And I later really thought about that, that I had been to many ceremonies in my life. And if a priest says over two people I love, God is going to keep you together. I'm sitting out there thinking, geez, I hope something else is going to be because they don't believe in God and I know it. The point I just want to make is I've been to ceremonies where someone adds a poem and suddenly the room changes and everybody feels okay about death or birth or marriage. Well, let me ask you about how poetry does does that. that. Yeah. You know, look, human beings have a deep desire for transcendence, for meaning, for some connection to something beyond ourselves. And the question is, do we need to look to the supernatural for any of these things? And the answer to that, for you and for me, is clearly no. So what is it about great poetry or great art and literature that allows us to connect with these deep human needs? Well, one answer is they speak directly to it. They talk about death and life and and birth. And the truth is, in our normal conversation, we, we don't talk about these things very much, you know. All of art is where we engage in these questions without necessarily having the supernatural. But poetry is one where it's condensed speech. It's very much like prayer. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in terms of the prayers that have been around so long that they stayed because they're beautiful or fun to say. You know, prayers change with every generation, every hundred years or so. Religions change all the time. It's those little pieces of speech that we call poetry that can kind of slot into where we might have called religious meditation or prayer. They do it by talking—this is really a tiny recipe—they mention the infinitesimal and the gigantic in terms of size and time. Just those two things are enough to rattle the human mind. 
Just noticing that parrots live longer than us can rattle the human mind. Just thinking Wait, about Wait, parrots it. live longer than us? I think so, yeah. I think, or in any case, there are birds that live 130 years. Man, okay. I don't know how I feel about that. I know. It's disturbing. <laughs> it seems odd if anything could manage to keep going. There are turtles that are hundreds of years old. Why the turtle and why not I? It's a reasonable question. Why indeed. You know, there's that... Um... There's that line, and I'm so sorry, I don't even remember who wrote it or who said it, but it's something to the effect of, the success of poetry depends on the failure of language. Oh, that's good, yeah. I love what that's getting at or what I think it's getting at. And I'll tell you what I think it's getting at. You, the poet, will tell me what it's actually getting at. Mm -hmm. I think the point there is that conventional speech, it can only say so much, but poetry plays a different game with language. It, it uses language to point beyond language, to try to say what's actually not sayable because we don't have the words for it. And in that way, it touches something beyond what's comprehensible. Right. I mean, the poetry has certain tricks that it uses. One aspect of a trick, say, is the fact that we can read sense in a single line and also the sentence that the line is part of. Poets are doing that, thinking about what their individual lines mean and how they mean if you read them as a grammatical sentence. That means that you can say several different things at once, each of your lines making certain kinds of claims, while the sentence that includes them is making a different kind of claim. Why is that so important? Because of the ambivalence of the human experience. We almost never feel only one way. Mm. We also almost never feel that other people's words fully contain our experience. And so when words attempt to contain our experience, but include some strangeness, some spaces in understanding, we, the reader, bring that part. I think that's true of all art. But yeah, with poetry in particular, it has to get up and talk, right? You can sit in a lab and make beings all day long, these little poems you make, but one of them, every once in a while, stands up and says hello, to be or not to be. It doesn't fall apart. We're never going to forget to be or not to be. It's too good. I don't know how that works, but sometimes you put words together and they are stuck forever, and most of the time we babble away and nothing sticks. But when poetry sticks. It sticks forever. And there's something very special about language that can hold together like that, even across time. I wish I could stick together words like that. I, I've tried to write poetry and I can't do it. There's just, my mind cannot help but go back into that sort of logical mode where it's trying to make sense of things. It's trying to order things in such a way. And it's just, it's, it's just not the poetical <laughs> mindset, right? Right. I'm resigned to just enjoying other people's. <laughs> you can think a little bit in terms of wit. People who are charming and witty and make jokes, what are they doing in their minds? They're kind of, I always think of it as a sort of a tumbler. Somebody said something. Is there something funny around that? I just tumble it around and look for it. Uh, yeah, that. Or nope, nothing. Keep moving. Somebody else said something funny. Keep moving. That little tumble, tumble, tumble. That's the action of poetry for me. I sit I wait for something true to come out of my mouth, which can be forever, just anything that doesn't feel like a blatant falsehood, and I go from there. <laughs> and and you come up with nothing a lot of the time, but every once in a while, you come up with something that lives. What I've suggested for people with this book is you should pick out 12 occasions in your life, 
either holidays or human needs, pick out the poem in advance, put it in a booklet, and you can go to it. You'll then know that if somebody dies, you have a poem for that. I believe that people who read a great deal of poetry already have this in their heads. And I ask people to take those 12 poems from world poetry if they can. If we all take from that, A, it's a cultural bond. It makes us stretch outside race, gender, class, time. It obliterates all of that. It gets right to somebody else's heart. But it also makes it so that we might choose poems that match. And if you and I turn out to have the same poem for grief, it's going to be a bond. What I'm trying to do is imagine a world where we do have a prayer book, but it's each our own, but we don't have to write it. It's already there. The great poetry is already there. The great rituals are already there. We just snap them together. What's your favorite ritual in your life? What do you find yourself turning to the most? And does poetry play a part in that? Or is it something altogether different? I mean, you seem to have an appreciation for what rituals do for us. So I assume yes. ritual is a part of your life as well. And I'm just asking, what's your kind of go-to ritual? Well, like I said, I do enjoy taking part of the rituals that everybody else is doing. I mean, one way to answer your question is Halloween is my favorite holiday. I've always <laughs> loved dressing up. My kids, we all put a lot into it. We decorate the house. My husband puts the, you know, we happen to live in a neighborhood that likes Halloween. We're in Brooklyn in a neighborhood that does Halloween a lot. There are neighborhoods that do Christmas, and I've definitely gotten in a car with somebody who wanted to go look at the lights, and I enjoy that a lot. We light the menorah all the way through Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah is not the most important of Jewish holidays, but we like that feeling of being in the holidays with the rest of the country, the rest of the world, really. I like New Year's because the whole world celebrates it. So for me personally, I, if I look out the back windows in my apartment, there's trees and a little yard, and I feed the birds because I like the cardinals and the blue jays so I like watching the birds, and I do read poetry or recite poetry in my mind. And looking out the front, I get to watch people walk by. There's something about people watching. Um, it doesn't do it for everyone, but for a lot of people, it's a real entertainment and a real meditation. Where I live, they're not dressed up in crazy costumes, but there's certainly going to be interesting things happening going by. I'm on a side street in Brooklyn, and if you look out the window for a little, you know, five minutes, you see some interesting humanity. We're going to take one last short break, but when we come back, I'll ask Jennifer if there are still reasons to pray if you're not a believer. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. 
If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Do you ever pray? Do I pray? Yeah, ever. Let's see. I'm going to say no. Um, I really have no sense of up at all. And there's nobody up there. Yeah, but of all... Okay, I'm, I'm glad you, you said that. Because I do pray sometimes. I started doing that not too long ago. And it's not because I think there's someone listening. Right, right. <laughs> it's not that. Okay, then I do that. I talk out loud. It's almost like a meditation. Yes. And this is what I've come to appreciate about prayer as a practice. I'll just, I try to sit down and I just quietly say to myself, sometimes aloud, the things I'm grateful for in my life, you know, my family, yeah. my health, that I have, you know, rewarding work, on and on and on. And it's, yeah, it's just a space for me to just affirm these things. And it doesn't require any deity, right? No one has to be listening on the other end of the line for that to be useful. And that's how I came to think a little bit differently about prayer. But I am curious, you said that you think in terms of agnosticism now. Yeah. You have a sense that, first let me say, I think that there's a a gray area. Nice. I think there's a gray area where poetic people have a choice of saying, I believe in God and all I think of as God is love. I cannot tell you how many religious people have told me that they believe in nothing supernatural, but they like the idea that God is love, and for them, they believe in God. And they can see that I believe the same things they do, but I don't care to use that language because I think it's important to be precise, and the word God has no precise meaning. So, if God is love, then I believe in love, but I don't want to use that crazy other word, which means every single thing in the world and nothing. Mm. But I really think it's important to think this thing through. We're alive for a short amount of time. I always say, look, if we were the only things on the planet, I would say, I don't know what consciousness is. I have no reason to guess whether it comes from some divine thing, whether it exists afterwards. But there are ants, and there are wallabies, and there are so many conscious creatures on this planet. 
And if I look at an ant, does an ant have a consciousness? Yeah. Do I think that it needed a divine one or that it will exist afterwards? Ridiculous. So I just can't help thinking of anything else as a kind of unnecessary delusion. We got used to a strange religion that liked the idea of a guy who listens. And I think that the abyss is just having stared at heaven too long. It's just an after effect. It's a hangover. Wait, so what were you going to ask me? Were you going to ask why I'm an agnostic or what was... I did ask you if you were an agnostic and you said that you prayed. Tell me more. Why I'm an, I identify as an agnostic? Hmm. I don't think that has anything to do with prayer. I, I, the prayer is really, it's just a practice. The agnostic part, I mean, I, I don't want to go too much into it. I, I, I'll just put it this way. I, I've had some experiences later in life that have made me a little more alive to the strangeness of the world. Yes, sure. And so I, I guess I'm a little more uncertain about what's possible. Sure. Or maybe more awakened to the possibility of possibility, if that makes any sense. I just don't know. I am fairly confident that if there is such a thing as God, I don't have any faith in one of my fellow mammals as a, some kind of exclusive vehicle for communicating what that God <laughs> wants me to do or, or who I should be naked with or like whatever, right? But also farther, if God is in charge of morality, I call bullshit. How can I stand in front of this great being and be satisfied that babies suffer and die for nothing? I find it offensive, the idea that some being could reconcile all this suffering. I, f I find it ridiculous and offensive. I, I'm not saying that you said it, but I'm saying that, that we have to think through what we're saying. And again, I'll say that I feel like I'm more describing what I see as happening now than prescribing anything. But what I see is a whole bunch of human beings making moves towards a non-supernatural kind of poetic way of being that I don't think helps us to call a non-supernatural religion, especially because I'm saying, you know, don't change anything. All these people already do these little holidays that they like to do, but they don't remember that if you believe in a real religion that's alive, then on the day that, well, say, we're in Lent right now, okay? If you truly believe in Catholicism, you have a way of cleaning yourself and starting new that is connected to all your other beliefs. And that's all I'm trying to say is that a lot of us have ways where we've already figured out how to reach for the poetic, how to be grateful, how to have those moments. And I'm just saying, hey, doesn't it look like we actually have something here? Maybe if we think about it like that and remember that probably the most important part is community. Probably the most important part is remembering the humanity of other people. Then we might survive, you know? You and I are perfectly aligned on all of that. And isn't it funny that, like, some of the titles that we use, the title sounds like we might have different beliefs, but then you dig down, consciousness is so strange. I always say uh, consciousness is weirder than virgin birth by far. Virgin birth? Come on! You got a couple of cells reproducing on their own. They manage it without a sperm once. Big deal. But the meat thinks and wrote all of the symphonies? What? Out of nothing? out of slime. So we live in an absolutely ridiculous situation, absurd and poetic, and we pretend it isn't all the time. And art and poetry is just 
dipping our heads into noticing, yes, this is bizarre. No, it, look, I'm a, I'm a Camus scholar, so I, I'm here for embracing the absurdity. Um, I wanted to ask you what your favorite poem is. And I'm told by my trusted producer colleague that you came prepared with a poem that you might read for us. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I have a lot of favorites, and they, they're always coming to me. Here's a pretty short poem. And it's one of the most famous Spanish-language poems. I'm reading an English translation. It's known all over the world. And it's by Antonio Machado. Traveler, there is no road. Traveler, your footprints are the only road and nothing else. Traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. As you walk, you make the road. And turning to look back, you see a path that will never be traveled again. Traveler, there is no path, only a foam trail on the sea. I don't want to ruin that poem by... Oh, were you still reading it? No, I just, I remember someone said once that the silence after a Bach piece is also by Bach. I would love that. Isn't that good? Uh, so I'm like, yeah, The Silence After the Machado Poems, also by Machado. So I leave a little quiet. No, I was just going to say, I was, I was sitting with that listening. I don't want to ruin it by, by asking you to explain it. No, I don't mind. I believe in explaining poems. Yeah. Well, then how does that one land for you? What's going on there? Well, I think that so many people love it because of the word traveler. Traveler is always at the beginning of sentences in this poem. So it's at the beginning of lines. It's always capitalized. It's always like, we're talking to you. I'll tell you that I happen to believe that poets are, especially when they sound like they're bossing you around or telling you what's true, they're talking to themselves. They're just trying to remember something they figured out, which once you have that in your head, sometimes it, it lowers one's resistance when you realize this person's just trying to remember. and. I talked to you before about line breaks. He'll say, you know, look back and you'll see a path line break that never can be traveled again, meaning there is no path. And that's what he does throughout it. He gives you a little bit of a sense that you have left footprints. There is a little bit of foam after a boat travels. It's not like we make no dent. I also like to say that poetry, unlike prose, doesn't end on truth. It'll throw some truth up and then have a turn that tries something else and then try a different kind of truth. It doesn't mean that whatever they land on is what they're, you know, whatever is suggested that isn't negated entirely is in there. And so he is saying we are travelers. And he is saying that our sense that we're supposed to be going in certain ways is illusory. There is no path which means there is no other path. You're not doing it wrong. As a matter of fact, your experience is the universe as far as you're concerned. The universe cohered around your consciousness as you were born, and as you experience the world, your life is the path. Can anyone else follow you? Yes and no. The suggestion of footsteps, the suggestion of the wake of the sea. But what's the largest thing that reaches us? Even bigger than the footsteps or the wake of the sea is the poem. The poem which made it through decades and decades and decades and at least one language to get to me. To shift my perspective. The first thing that you learn from poems always 
is the reminder that there's another human being out there, that there's another heart beating out there trying to say something true. And then whatever it is that they say, which in this case is, you know, relax, whatever you're doing is right in this particular universe. Have you ever read Bertrand Russell's A Free Man's Worship? I have read a great deal of Bertrand Russell. I couldn't put my finger on whether I've read that one. Um, it's maybe my favorite piece of writing, period. Yeah. You inspired me to re-read it last night, and I did. And there's a passage that I remember how it hit me the first time I read it, and I read it again last night, and it, it almost makes me teary-eyed. Can I read it to you? Please. All right, here we go. One by one, as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Very brief is the time in which we can help them in which their happiness or misery is decided. Be it ours to shed sunshine on their path, to lighten their sorrows by the balm of sympathy, to give them the pure joy of a never-tiring affection. Let us not weigh in grudging scales their merits and demerits, but let us think only of their needs, of their sorrows, the difficulties, perhaps the blindnesses that make the misery of their lives. Let us remember that they are fellow sufferers in the same darkness, actors in the same tragedy as ourselves. And so, when their day is over, when their good and their evil have become eternal by the immortality of the past, be it ours to feel that where they suffered, where they failed, no deed of ours was the cause. But wherever a spark of the divine fire kindled in their hearts, we were ready with encouragement, with sympathy, with brave words in which high courage glowed. Now, that's not quite poetry, but it is. Yeah, it is. It's gorgeous. I find such comfort and inspiration in it every time I read it. There's no false salvation. There's no retreat into illusion. It's just an acknowledgement that the world rolls on without any thought or concern for a particular mammal on an unimportant rock in a remote solar system. Right. But there's so much poetry in the acceptance of all that and in this call to solidarity and love. And this may be a morbid thing to say, but I've, I've had the thought more than once that if anyone was going to read anything at my funeral, I want it to be that. Yeah, I love it. Um, you know, I suppose that it is close to poetry, but that what might make it not what poetry is, is that it faces joy so strongly. Hmm. Because in real life, it's so very hard to be kind even for, what, 20, 25 minutes? I mean, it is hard. Don't get me wrong. We all screw up. I just like texts that include that this is the goal and it's basically impossible. Like, I want that acknowledged, yeah. that having the goal of being kind and recognizing the humanity of other people is the whole ball of wax, yeah. the whole thing. As a matter of fact, along with Levinas, I don't know if you've read him. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure we exist outside of relation. I am a very solitary person, but I understand all that solitude as in relation with all the words I've read and all the people I've known, to perhaps a profound level, to perhaps a level where there is no thinking or being outside of relation. So, I mean, this is where I allow myself to sound slightly, what, 
I wouldn't call your description of agnosticism a dip into woo, nor would I describe <laughs> what I'm trying to say here a dip into woo, but others might, which is just looking at what we've learned about the brain and what we've learned about the forest and the fungus and the mother trees, it is abundantly clear that we don't know what's going on here. What's amazing is that unlike the meerkats and the forest with the fungus, not only are we connected in ways we can't imagine, but we're also connected in this way, this really unbelievably straightforward way where we move our mouths and actually hear each other. It's unbelievable that we have so much that makes us one, and yet we feel so separate. But nothing feels as good as helping other people. It's so hard to get ourselves to do. But everything you just read, the point is, when you need help, go help somebody else. When you need existential help, go help someone else with their existential help, and you perk right up. I don't know how it works, but you perk right up. In the end, what would you say is the greatest reward? of a life filled with poetry. I don't want to say benefit because I don't want to reduce poetry to that kind of economic calculus, but apart from just the beauty of great literature and great poetry, what do you hope people can most gain from engagement with it? I guess a kind of freedom. I think when you're not trying to believe something you don't believe or trying to hide from a very scary, dark thought, you get to live a bigger life and be less scared be able to connect to people and do the things you want to do, to be a whole human being. So many people are either trying to block out the idea that the world's about to end, which it really isn't. It's about to go through some terrible stuff, but it's not about to end. And we're overselling that. You cannot have a retirement plan that is the apocalypse. The apocalypse is not going to be there and destroy everything. You are going to have to figure it out. And the sun is not going to expand and eat the earth in billions of years or too much to think of. It's as good as not happening. The world is permanent. It's here, and you're part of it, and you can take part in it. If you can bear just dropping all the things you think are holding you up, you'll notice you don't fall. We're holding each other up. It doesn't mean nothing. What it means is bigger than you. We make our own meaning to a degree. Mostly we join the meaning of the people around us and we figure that out. And it's a much more rewarding kind of life. I think it's even harder to believe something you don't believe because you think you need to believe it. So either the people who are blocking out the abyss or the people who have put up a fake floor over the abyss, I think they're both going to feel a whole lot better if they just walk away from the abyss. It's not there. It's an after effect. A lot of this stuff is an after effect of the fact that we're living in a time of profound change with religion. But individually, I think we're doing a great job. It just takes a little recontextualizing. That's really it. We're already doing it. Just a little more intention leads to, in my personal experience, emotional freedom. The book is called The Wonder Paradox, embracing the weirdness of existence and the poetry of our lives. Jennifer, this was an absolute joy. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I loved it. I really enjoyed it so much. Thanks.
Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I know you hear me say this a lot, but I really loved this conversation. I'm not exactly a believer, but I have a deep appreciation for these sorts of questions. And I wish other secular-minded people took them more seriously, like Jennifer does. But let me know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, share it with the aspiring poets in your life. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.